Father, Son, Holy Spirit, once more we say thanks. Thank you for welcoming us into this space. Thank you for calling us back week after week to gather around your table. Lord, I pray this morning that you would help us to find your rest, that you would help us to find your peace, that you would draw us in real close, tuck us under your wing. Lord, that you would help us to set aside anything that might get in the way of hearing from you this morning, that you would help us to empty, to release, Lord, and I pray that you would meet us, that you would invite us into a true encounter with you this morning through the interactions we have in this space, through the hearing of your word, and what in whatever other way, God, you want to move and, and shift and nudge us. So Holy Spirit, come, be very real to us, minister to us, help us to minister to one another. And as Leslie said, we thank you for the ways you've continued to pour into this church. May we sense something of your love and allow that to flow from us as we go into our weeks. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, we've been making our way around Luke's gospel. And throughout this sermon series, we've really been looking at the ways of Jesus. So this morning, I'm going to take us towards the end of Luke's gospel. We're going to be in Luke 22 this morning. And we're going to look at a passage that I think is going to be familiar to most of us. In many of our English translations of the Bible, this passage sits often under a heading that reads, The Institution of the Lord's Supper. Okay, so we're going to be talking about this meal today, this meal that we participate in week after week after week. And my hope for us this morning is that we might be invigorated as we come to this table and consume these everyday, seemingly ordinary elements, that we might experience some new energy and new zeal for living a Christ-centered life, confident in our place in God's redemptive story. Confident in our place in God's redemptive story. So that is my hope for us today. No matter who you are and where you find yourself on your journey today, that's been my prayer this week as I've prepared. So let me set the stage. Use your imagination. I want you to try to visualize where we are in the Jesus story, okay? Jesus and his band of disciples, they have made their entry into Jerusalem, right? Jesus has come in triumphantly on a donkey, and in Luke's gospel, we see that Jesus weeps over the state of the city. He says, if only you had recognized Jerusalem this day, the things that make for peace. If only you had recognized the time of your visitation from God. So he is distressed as he comes into the city. We know that Jesus clears the temple for it's being used in a manner that it is not intended to be used for. And we see Jesus teaching and preaching in the temple and outside the temple, to the crowds and to his disciples, often in earshot of the chief priests and the scribes. As you can imagine, all of this is quite disruptive. Jesus is teaching disruptive things, and Jesus' very presence is disruptive. 
And so it's no surprise that those in power, the chief priests, the scribes, other leaders, the scripture says, were looking for a way to kill him. And their opportunity comes, right? Their opportunity comes by way of a man named Judas, Judas who was one of Jesus's 12, part of the inner circle. The scripture says that then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the 12. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and temple police about how he might betray him to them. So a plan is hatched. A hit has been put out on Jesus, and this plan is unfolding, which brings us to where our passage is situated this morning. Jesus sends two of his disciples, Peter and John, into the city to prepare the Passover meal. And Jesus says, here's how this is going to go. Go into the city. You're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. Follow that guy. Go into the house that he goes into and then say to the owner of that house that the teacher needs your guest room. We have a Passover meal to eat. And Jesus assures his disciples that indeed this man is going to show them to an upstairs room where everything needed by way of furnishings will be present for this Passover meal. Prepare the meal there, Jesus says. And so John and Peter, in their obedience, they go. And this unfolds just as Jesus says that it would. So verse 14 is where I'm going to begin reading, Luke 22, verse 14. It will go just through verse 20 this morning, so a short passage. It'll be on the screen, or just keep listening if that helps your imagination. Here's what it says. When the hour came, he took his place at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And then he took a loaf of bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, this cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So what's going on here? I think to understand the fullness and the significance of what Jesus is doing here, we need to understand a thing or two about the Passover, about the Jewish Passover. Now, I am not an expert in this. This should surprise nobody here. I've never actually even been to a Passover celebration. Have any of you? I'm always curious. Wow, you are more qualified than I am today to speak to this. And I know we have some OT scholars in the room and some church historians, so you can correct me if I put my foot in my mouth over the next 15 minutes, maybe after the sermon, if you don't mind. Um, but I've not experienced the Passover meal. I didn't grow up with this tradition in my home. But let me try to offer the best I can a broad brushstroke here about what this annual celebration is, its purpose, and some of the rituals that happened around the table. All right, so the Passover is something that the Jewish people have celebrated for the last 3,000 plus years. By the time Jesus was gathering his disciples around this table, this meal, Jewish people had already been celebrating Passover every year for at least a thousand years. What I'm trying to say is that this is a very, very, very familiar tradition. 
these disciples grew up celebrating this meal. They would have known the food, and they would have known the songs, and they would have known the prayers and the blessings, all of it associated with this celebration. This routine would have been in their bones, embodied. And so what is the purpose of this annual celebration? It's to tell the story of their ancestors' freedom from slavery in Egypt. That's what's remembered at the Passover. It's a hopeful liberation story, a telling of what God has done, and a hopeful looking forward to what God someday will do. So at the Passover meal, there is certainly bread, unleavened bread, to be specific. And when the person presiding over the meal lifts up the bread, words are spoken that point back to what God did as he rescued his people from slavery. Something like, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let anyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat this Passover meal. Bitter herbs would have been eaten to remind those who've gathered about the bitterness of slavery. Salt water would have been consumed in some fashion, reminding the people of the tears shed under Egypt's oppression. And there was a main course, who knows what that is? What else is traditionally served at the Passover? Lamb. <laughs> lamb, I heard a few of you say it, lamb. Right, lamb, the lamb didn't symbolize anything connected to the agonies of Egypt, but rather it reminded those gathered something about sin-bearing sacrifice. Right? The blood of the lamb. The lamb was understood as the sin-bearing sacrifice that allowed the judgment of God to pass over the households of the faithful, sparing their firstborn. So remember the Exodus story. Lamb sacrifice, blood painted on doorposts to spare homes. So the lamb represents atonement. It's a sacrifice made to save God's people from their transgressions. So there's lamb at the Passover table. So these elements of the supper the prayers sung, the blessings said around the table would have been very familiar to these disciples. But look at what Jesus does. At this particular Passover meal, Jesus changes things. He takes up these meaningful symbols of bread and wine, and he gives them new meaning. Verse 19, what does Jesus say? He does not say, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth wheat from the field. He does not say that. He says, verse 19, this is my body, which is given for you. What? Verse 20, he does not say, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth fruit from the vine. No. He says, this cup that's poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What? We hear these words every single week, so maybe they sound like nothing radical to our ears, but at that table, on that night, can you imagine how confusing that must have been? When I read the Gospels, I like to try to imagine the atmosphere of the disciples, like what's happening within that little culture. I'm just interested in that, how a culture functions. And sometimes scripture tells us exactly what the disciples are doing and thinking and saying, but often it leaves a lot of room for imagination, and this is one of those times. So I imagine that meal, and I imagine that table, and the table would have been low to the ground, and the disciples would have sort of been reclining. You have to get Da Vinci's painting out of your head. That's not what the Last Supper 
looks like. And so I imagine those disciples, and I sort of imagine maybe, maybe Thomas, that's who I think it would be. It would be Thomas, and he kind of gives an elbow over to Philip, right? Like, what did Jesus just say? That's not the script. That's not how it's supposed to go. Maybe a little eyebrow over to Philip. What? What's he saying? Jesus is doing a new thing. Jesus is doing a new thing right before their very eyes. And I think what he's doing at this moment is saying to his disciples, pay attention. Something is about to change. And as we encounter Jesus in the Gospels, Jesus around the table, Jesus in our neighbors, Jesus in the eyes of the poor and the weak and the marginalized, in this century, in this cultural moment, in this church, I have to wonder if Jesus isn't inviting us to the same thing. Pay attention. I'm doing a new thing. Something is about to change. This scene to me is Jesus doing some of his best performance art. He's taking something familiar and bringing new meaning and new life into it. And those present are not really sure what to make of it. I'm not so sure at that moment the disciples get it. Keep reading in Luke's account, and those disciples are about to have an argument about who's the greatest. I don't think they fully get it. And I wonder sometimes if we miss it too. The new thing Jesus has done and is doing. In fact, I know we miss it. I miss it all the time. What is Jesus doing here? What is he saying without actually saying it? What is he inviting his disciples and by extension us into? He says it actually quite clearly. New covenant. So what's that? What's the new covenant? Again, I think to understand the fullness and the significance of what Jesus is doing here, we have to understand a thing or two about covenants including what the old covenants were, the old covenant God makes with God's people. So what is a covenant? What is a covenant? Simple terms, a covenant is a permanent, faithful, relational partnership. It's a promise held between two partners committed to the terms. It's a promise held between two partners committed to an agreed-upon relational dynamic. Covenant requires a yes to the terms from both sides. We don't have a whole lot of lived experience, I don't think, in this day and age with covenantal structure. Marriage might be the closest we come to understanding this. Adoption, maybe. Right, an agreement made by parents who take on the responsibility of caring for someone who is not biological kin, that relational dynamic might help us understand covenant. But we don't have a whole lot to go off of to help us understand this structure of covenant in the way the authors and the readers of the biblical narrative originally would have, but I think we need to try to understand it. We need to try to understand it because covenant is an important key to understanding God's redemptive plan, which folds, unfolds over the entire Bible, which is to restore humanity to its divine calling, to put humanity into right relationship with God. Covenants are all over scripture. Start looking for them. You'll start to see them. Okay, but it's widely understood that there are five big ones. 
five foundational covenants God makes with God's people, starting in Genesis and taking us through Jesus. Let's see if we can name them. You all are smart cookies. I know we can do this, all right? Five primary covenants, okay? God's covenantal relationship with humanity begins in a garden. God promises that he will be with creation in that garden. He will care for them. He will protect them. He will provide for them so long as those humans keep their part of the promise, obedience, faithfulness, loyalty to God. And the garden is where humans fail their first covenantal test, their first test of covenantal faithfulness. And so from the garden onward, the Bible unfolds what we might call God's redemptive plan. And it's a story of how God is repairing this fractured partnership with humans. So the first covenant or promise God makes as this reparative story unfolds is this. I will never flood the earth again. Who does he make that promise with? Noah. Noah. And we see this faithful man, Noah, set off on a journey following God's commands to multiply and replenish the earth. Noah was given instruction about how to treat living things. And in exchange for this way of life, God was going to fill the earth again through him, through his family. All right, and despite that covenant with Noah, and despite Noah's faithfulness, evil continues to take its toll on the world. So God enters into another covenantal relationship, this time with a man named Abraham. And what is this covenant about? What does God promise Abraham? Genesis 12, God tells Abraham to leave his country and to leave his family and go to a land that God would give him. And God promises to make Abraham a great nation through whom all other nations would be blessed. And God offers Abraham protection and fruitfulness so long as he and his descendants follow the path of God. And so we see this faithful man, Abraham, set off on a journey following God's commands. The story continues. And just as God said would happen, Abraham's descendants do multiply, but they find themselves to be strangers in a strange land, enslaved in a territory that is not their own, right? For 400 years, God's people were in Egypt under the rule and reign of Pharaoh. And so the people cry out to God. That's important. The people cry out to God, and eventually God raises up a leader who's going to lead them into freedom. The third covenant is coming, and who is that leader? Moses. And God's going to make another promise. He's going to enter into another covenant with his people at Mount Sinai, renewing the one God gave Abraham. God says, I'm going to give you a land of your own. I'm going to lead you to the promised land. And we see in the Exodus story the terms of this covenant. God says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a treasured possession among all nations, among all peoples. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Because you see at that point in the story, Israel is an affiliated tribal society. They're not yet a nation. 
and God gives his people rules, and we don't really like that word, rules, but think about it as a rule of life, a way of being in the world. And for 40 years, they're going to wander the wilderness before reaching that promised land, and that, my friends, is a transformation story as much as it is a quest for new land. God's people are becoming something new, and forgive me now as I skip a large swath of biblical history, but fast forward, the holy nation is living in the promised land because God keeps God's promises, and what do they demand? What do they see the other nations have and they want one too? King. And God gives them one. Who's the first one? Saul, what a piece of work. But then God raises up that young, sheep-herding, flute-playing shepherd boy, a man after God's own heart, which brings us to another covenant. What is the promise God makes with David? God promises to make his name great and raise up a descendant from his bloodline whose throne and kingdom will last forever. David is the appointed leader who's going to play a role in securing the promises of land and descendants and blessing for God's people. And who does God eventually raise up from David's bloodline and enthrone? Who's the savior the prophets predicted would come? Who's the new king? who would repair the fractured relationship between God and God's people once and for all. Jesus! This is where we shout, Jesus! <laughs> Jesus comes. Jesus comes. Indeed, God raises up the faithful king from the line of David, from the descendants of Abraham, who will restore all humankind into right relationship with God again. That's the promise. And God keeps God's promises. The new covenant is a new relationship between God and humans built upon the old covenants, the old promises that God has been making with his people from the very beginning. And so what are the terms? What are the terms of the new covenant? Think of it this way. Covenants between God and humankind are about becoming a people inheriting a place and being with God, in God's rest, in God's peace. So with the new covenant, the people are no longer defined as the biological offspring of Abraham, but as anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord and endures to the end. The yes God invites us into is yes, Jesus is Lord, yes, Jesus is king. Yes, Jesus, you can be the center of my life because, in fact, that's where you put yourself. Yes. So through Jesus, God's embrace has been expanded to include all humanity as it once did in the garden. And what of the place? What is the place given to the people of God? This is also redefined in the new covenant. Rather than being a land of national Israel, as it was in the days of David, or a specific geographic area, as it was in the days of Abraham, the promised place is the kingdom. The New Testament teaches us that the church will not see the kingdom of God in full reign until Jesus comes again, when he takes up that rightful place as conquering king to reclaim the territory. But we get glimpses of kingdom now, as people who live in this so-called now-but-not-yet reality. 
Jesus came preaching that the kingdom of God has come near. And when he left this earth, he left his spirit so that the kingdom of God is still actually quite close at hand. It's when peace lands on you as if out of nowhere. It's when justice reigns in the face of oppression or corruption. It's when a relationship between siblings or friends is restored. It's when your breath is taken away at a sunset or by the twirl of a dancer. It's when the black-eyed Susan pops its head out of the yard again like it did in our yard this week. Those who put their trust in Jesus, who proclaim Jesus is Lord, get to live as kingdom citizens now. And someday, when Jesus returns, the kingdom will come in fullness. New heaven, new earth. That's the place of the new covenant. That's the promised place. And what of the presence of God? Because remember, covenant is about becoming a people and inheriting a place and being with God, with God in God's presence. I think this is maybe the most amazing aspect of a new covenant, at least to me. God has been with his people from the beginning, in the garden, in a cloud, in the tabernacle, in the temple. The new covenant, in the new, new covenant, the presence is released from its temple constraints. As the gospel writer John records it, the presence has come to tabernacle or dwell among us in Jesus. And in Acts, where we see the inauguration of the ministry of the church, we find that Jesus has entrusted this task of housing the presence with his church. That's us. That's us, friends. We get to be partners again with God as God makes and remakes the world. Will we say yes? Will we say yes to that invitation? This is the new covenant, the life-giving partnership that Jesus invites us into. So this meal that we share every week, it is about so much more than just simply saying, Jesus paid the price for our sins. It is about that, and that's important. That sacrifice is a critical component of covenant. But there's a richer story unfolding here as well. Jesus invites us into life-giving partnership and extends an invitation for us to say yes to finding our place in that story. So the question for us becomes, will we? Will we? So we're going to have an opportunity now to move towards the table, to meet Jesus here. And as we, we move in this direction, I want you to just consider something. I want you to consider what your yes means and what your yes might mean today. Okay, Not what did it mean yesterday or what did it mean when you first accepted Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, but what does it mean today? What is your yes to this table, to this invitation mean today? Or what do you want your yes to mean? You could ponder that as well. So take a little time to just ponder that. And when you're ready, come to the table, as we do every week. Take the elements back to your seat, and we'll take communion together. And if you feel compelled, you might consider chalking something on the board, if that's a helpful way for you to kind of embody this invitation. Jesus invites us into life-giving partnership. Will we say yes? Maybe just marking your name, maybe just marking an initial, maybe that's your yes today. Maybe there's something more that's bubbling up in you and you want to write it on the board. Feel free to do that. Okay, so meet 
Jesus at this table. Commune with other believers at this table, believers who've been practicing this tradition for thousands of years. Allow this table to be more than just routine. Let it be an invitation into fresh partnership with a God who says, I choose you. I've always chosen you. I created you. You're my beloved. You're mine. Will you say yes back to me? Okay, so ponder that. I'm going to invite Jeffrey to come on forward, who's going to strum some tunes for us as we move towards communion. And as you prepare to come to the table, in, in place of our corporate confession this morning, I'd like to just read a blessing over you. I'd like to just speak some words over you. These are from the writer of Hebrews shared with the early church, and by extension, I share them with you. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. They say, therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and light living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. When you're ready, come on forward. <laughs> 